everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, we are in a sermon series uh, called Minding the Gap. Minding the Gap. And the idea is that we are minding the gap between what we believe about God and what we encounter from God or what we experience from God. Uh, We think that everybody, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, you grapple with this gap. And what's often the case, particularly for those of us who are followers of Christ, is the gap shrinks and expands, you know, over the course of our lifetime. Uh, When we kicked off the series, we were talking about the simple idea that sometimes when you first become a follower of Christ, it feels like there's no gap at all. It's actually our Irish sisters and brothers back from way back in the Middle Ages. They talk about a thin place, a thin place, the simple idea that the gap or, or the, the, what they call the veil or the curtain between earth and heaven is really thin. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where you just feel like, wow, this is like a spiritual place. This is a particular place where I feel closer to God. But other times, boy, it feels to you like the gap. It's not just like this vacuum. There's a giant brick wall in it, right? And you just find yourself keep hitting up against the gap. And so last week, Jake Brown brought us a message on the idea, I believe God loves me, but I don't feel it. You know, Jake served as our student minister, our student pastor for like 12 years. We almost never saw him up here on stage. He would would keep Jake tucked away in the basement with the teenagers. Uh, Jake has recently changed roles where he's leading a lot of our online church. And I was like, Jake, I think we need to hear from you. I just got to say, I'm really glad that we did. If you, if you missed last week's message, you missed out. It was a powerful and, and a poignant uh, set of tools and ideas of how do you actually encounter the love of God for yourself. That was last week's gap. This week's gap, I believe God is with me, but I don't see it. I believe God is with me, but I don't see it. I, I think that if, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, you grapple with this gap. You might know that it's true that God is with you, but you don't see it. And there is particular circumstances that, that make it harder to see when God is with us. I'm, um, I'm part of a community this year. I was invited. It felt like a real gift from God. You know, as Alina mentioned, the transition and we, our, our family really appreciate the prayers for us as we're transitioning. I also just want to add as the current pastor of this church, I agree with Alina. The candidates that we have as the next lead pastor are both fantastic. Like God has given us uh, a great problem of discernment between these two great people. But of course, for the cusses, you know, we've been here 16 years in this role. It's emotional and it's challenging. And so God has been very gracious to me where Denver Seminary reached out and invited me to be part of an Ignatian spirituality group. This is just a small group where I'm under spiritual direction. I meet with a spiritual director one-on-one. It's kind of like counseling, but it's really focused on being attentive to the presence of God. And we do overnight retreats as a group, and then we do small group, and then we do one-on-one spiritual direction. And when we went on the retreat, they handed everyone a candle. It's an Ignatian thing. Saint Ignatius, you can Google this dude. He's, he's super amazing, by the way. He's basically a Catholic saint that had a way of prayer that had more to do with imagination than cognition. Ignatius really invites us to 
engage our imagination. And that's why oftentimes a lot of children are very good naturally at Ignatian prayer because they haven't grown out of it, you know, like us sophisticated adults. And so the very first thing, they hand us this candle and they said, okay, you're going to light the candle on two occasions. The first occasion is when you notice that God is with you, just light the candle. The second occasion is when you need to be reminded that God is with you, just light the candle. Not bad, huh? And so this is my candle. I thought I'd bring it today. I also happen to have conveniently a set of matches. And it's the simplest thing. If you want to do this at home, uh, I I invite you to do it. You know, I'm very mindful of not talking about like using big words to describe small experiences. You know, like sometimes preachers will say, it'll change your life, this kind of stuff. I don't know that this has changed my life. I will say this, it has radically increased my attentiveness to the presence of God. That's true. And it, this is how it works. You light, the, you light the match and you simply say, I light this candle in faith that God is with me regardless of how I feel or what I think in the moment and that God's presence is as close or closer than the air I breathe. And every time I see this light, I remember that God is with me. And then that's it. So that's just one thing that you might do this week. The the challenge of the idea of God's presence, I think it's a pretty straightforward challenge for us in the 21st century. We have two beefs. We have that God is invisible and oftentimes God uh, feels intangible. And I know I've gone on record saying a number of times that, you know, the disciples had a distinct advantage over us because God was not invisible. Jesus was with them. And therefore, God was not intangible. They could reach out and touch him. And we grapple with an invisible God. And the the fact is, it's just more difficult. But as I was preparing for this message, I thought, well, let me go into the scriptures and take a look at the times where Jesus was very much with somebody and, and different things happened. Because I think what happens in my life, I, I don't know about your belief, but the problem I have is I think my default way of thinking is if God is with me, things will get better. Whatever things are and whatever better is. Usually it's things in my life will get better the way I think they will. That's usually how it works. So I had this kind of default belief in my life that if I know God is with me and God is at work, then whatever it is I'm concerned about is going to smooth out. So I thought, well, let's put that theory to the test. So I've got three stories from the Gospels today. We're going to move through them really quickly and, and just see what happens when God is with the disciples. So here's the first one, Mark chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said, he being Jesus, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped, and Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke up, and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. I don't know if he was quite as indignant as I just said it, but I think he was. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
All right, so there's a time where Jesus is with the disciples. They're on a boat. The storm is a little heftier than they are comfortable with. It's like Deadliest Catch, if you've ever seen the TV show Deadliest Catch, and some of those Alaskan open ocean storms, they're terrifying. And so here are the disciples in a boat with a storm that is bigger than their comfort. They see Jesus asleep. That, frankly, that ticks them off a little bit, and they wake him up alarmed. And he stands calmly on the boat, and he says, peace be still, and the storm calms down, and they're freaked out, and I think probably what happened is he just went and took a, went back to his nap. Unless it was one of those 18-minute naps, and then he woke up just so perfectly ready for the rest of the day. All right, Jesus is with the disciples. This is an example calming the storm where being with Jesus makes your circumstance better. And that's true. Sometimes when God is with you, things get better, for sure. Now, many of you... Uh, your sermon experts. It's not like you really needed one more message today to make sure everything's fine. You know where we're going. You've already gone ahead of me on where we're heading here. Mark 14. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them The one I kiss is the man, arrest him, lead him away under God. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that You've come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts. You did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. Okay, so second story, we have the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is with the disciples and being with Jesus in that case makes your circumstances much worse. Suddenly, all of the disciples have to flee because their personal safety is in grave danger. Like they have to run for their lives. That's story number two. Uh, Story number three, Matthew chapter 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot uh, from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And as evening approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So now we have our third story, the feeding of the 5,000. Being with Jesus gives you a job you don't feel resource to do. Uh, Any of you had that experience where you become a follower of Christ, the next thing you know, God gives you an assignment and he asks you to do something that you have never had to do before and you don't even really know how you're going to do it. You're actually going to Jesus and saying, can you take care of this problem? And Jesus is like, you take care of that problem. Well, that's kind of petulant of you, Jesus. Like you're the miracle guy. You just spent a whole day doing miracles. Do one more. Uh, That's been my encounter with Jesus, I think, for some of you too. So often we look around the problems of this world and we say, how can God allow so much suffering? And Jesus says, how can you allow it? That's the question. Like you do something about it. So this idea that God is always with us 
automatically meaning that our path will be smooth. Uh, not so fast, right? Even in the Bible times, I, I would say you could actually do your own study of this and do a little chart. I would say as often as not, Jesus being with you complicated your life. Uh, sometimes when people are wondering about becoming followers of Christ, we do try to warn them. It might complicate your life a little bit uh, because you're no longer the center of your own life. Like that bank account, it's not yours anymore. That calendar, it's not yours anymore. Uh, it's now God's and God enjoys rummaging around your life and rearranging your priorities. So what does it mean that God is with us? And I think the harder question for us to answer is what good is it that God is with us? Every, every human being at some point, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, you have to grapple with a pretty profound question, what's God good for? Like, what's in it for me? All this talk of sacrifice and selflessness is true, but what is God good for? What can we count on? You start going through the Bible and you see all kinds of situations where it's hard to know what you can count on when God is with you. You know, God was with Mary and Joseph when Mary was carrying God in her womb, but they still had to leave. They lost their reputation among their friends and family. They had to scramble to find a place to give birth to God. God was with John the Baptist in prison and he was still beheaded. And John the Baptist, for those of you wondering, it's not like he went to his grave full of faith. No, he actually sent a message to his cousin, Jesus, his blood relative, Jesus, and said, hey, I thought you were the Messiah. Like, how can it be possibly true that I'm in prison and also you're the Messiah? Those two ideas seem mutually exclusive. And God's with us with a bumpy path. The fact is sometimes we stub the toe of our faith. Other times we run into a wall. Sometimes we fall over. Sometimes it's true we're simply weary and exhausted. But it doesn't change the fact that God is with us in it all. This past week, Lisa and I were at our son's soccer game. He plays for his high school, and we were there cheering on the kids. Our, our, our team, after years of not having a great record, we're really having a good season. And we played like one of our big nemeses. I don't know what the plural of nemesis is. I think it's nemeses. I didn't research it before getting ready for the message. I think it's nemeses. And, uh, um, Jefferson Academy, may, may uh, the, the fleas of a thousand camels infest their armpits. <laughs> and man, they're having a great season. And so we went to cheer them on and, and they defeated us. And it's a very sad story. But um, as we were cheering it along, a, a parent showed up late to the game. And uh, we know each other. We've talked to each other. We're, we're sidelined. We have a sideline relationship. You know, different kinds of people in your life. We have a sideline relationship. When we're on the sideline together, we visit. But it's not like we go out for a beer or we don't have any relationship outside the sideline. But still, when he walked toward us, both Lisa and I both walked up to him and gave him a hug. First hug I've ever given him in my life. And he was quite like, oh. And we gave him an extremely tentative hug because he'd been in a life-threatening car accident that week. Uh, he was driving at Orchard Parkway right behind us here and just minding his own business, just pulling out of the mall and somebody blew through that red light on 144th at 50 mile an hour and just cleaned him up. 
uh, flipped his car and then he skidded on the roof and then he must have hit something because he flipped back over at the end. He said that it was one of the most violent experiences he's ever encountered. All the windows smashed, airbags everywhere and flipping and, and just this colossal crash, he could have died. Where was God when that happened? Why did God allow that to happen? It's a reasonable question, but I think again, and I know we've harped on this in the last few months around here, but I think it's important to continue to play that harp. I think the better question than where was God is, why was the other driver checking her email on the phone at the time? That's why the accident happened. God didn't allow anything, but the other driver sure did. And this is what happened. In order for us to navigate a lifetime of faith with whatever life throws your way, at some point you have to put a stake in the ground. And I'm going to invite some of you to put that stake in the ground today. Uh, some of you put this stake in the ground years ago. And it's a stake of faith that God is good and that God is at work regardless of what I can see. I know, I, I know what it's like. You know, we, we so want as human beings, we so want certainty or we want some kind of a magic bullet. It's just very, very difficult as human beings to walk by faith. And I'll just let you know as a pastor, I struggle with it too. I find it to be a difficult experience to walk by faith. But one of the things that has helped me is to simply drive a stake in the ground of my faith that God is good and God is at work regardless of how I feel in any given moment and regardless of the circumstances coming my way. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, uh, you know, as we're talking about people who have these encounters with Jesus, is this man whose boy needed healing. And the man was desperate. They'd gone to all the medical technology they could in the first century, and that wasn't helping, and his boy was getting sicker. And he knew that Jesus was a healer, and so he busted his way through the crowd. He, excuse me, ma'am, sorry about that, sir, bumped his way to the front of the crowd, and he's begging Jesus to please heal his boy. And Jesus basically gives him a gentle chiding, which is like an invitation to draw more faith out of this guy. And Jesus says to him, I, I can heal your son. I can do anything for those who believe. And then immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think more than any other phrase in the New Testament, that is the journey with Christ. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I think it's a perfectly reasonable phrase for the father to say to Jesus because obviously on the one hand, Jesus is chiding the father gently. I think it's quite an intimate chide. I don't think he's telling him off. I think he's inviting more faith out of the father. But the father is a sensible man, particularly if he's already a follower of Christ. He knows Jesus doesn't owe him one more healing. 
Isn't that the dilemma we have? How many times have you had a loved one in your life that you're begging God for and the person doesn't get better? What do you do about that? Do you blame God? Or do you say, the fact is God does not owe us everything that we want from God. And so this father, I think rightly, is saying, listen, I know that Jesus isn't the magic wipe away everything guy. And that's our dilemma. So what I want to do is just kind of move the message into just three things that we can notice in our life that get in the way of noticing God's presence and just a tool for each of them. Three dynamics that we face in our life that get in the way of us paying attention to God's presence. The first one is hurry. Hurry. Jake alluded to this last week. There's a wonderful new book out from this incredible preacher and theologian named John Mark Comer. The book is called Ruthlessly Eliminate Hurry from Your Life. The title alone will make you mad. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Uh, this phrase, the title of the book, is not original with John Mark Comer. Uh, it was a phrase made famous by an old modern saint named Dallas Willard. Some of you may be familiar with Dallas Willard. Some of you may never have heard of Dallas Willard, but he was one of those old Yoda-like gurus that just seemed to live well all the time. He was that guy. I remember as a preacher when I was young in my preaching journey and very insecure about getting up in front of people and sharing my heart and then going off stage and repenting and regretting. You know, people ask me, when are you done preparing a sermon? I always say about 3 p.m. Sunday afternoon. You get done and then you have to repent of it and then you can kind of let it go and, you know, watch Suits or whatever. Anyway, I remember with Dallas Willard um, hearing him at a conference talk about how he would speak and then walk off stage and have no concern whatsoever with whether it went well or not. I was like, how do you do that? That, I want that. How do you do that? And what was equally surprising to me is he was quite boring. <laughs> if you've ever heard Dallas Willard speak, he doesn't put much effort into being interesting because he doesn't care in every wonderful way. And so I remember watching him like, I want that what he has. And for many of us, that's why he's like a modern saint, because we'd see the way he was with Christ and we were hungry for the same thing. And so one of his most famous phrases when people would ask him, how do I attend more to the presence of God? Dallas Willard would say, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So I first heard that phrase, I mean, it must have been 20-something years ago, and I'll just tell you that I still grapple with it. Um, I think I almost certainly fail at it more often than I succeed, and I've been trying to analyze why is that, because I think he's telling the truth. Why is it that I still struggle? And I think the simple fact is we live in a culture that is, is relentless. It's just relentless with busyness. There's busyness inside my soul, and there's busyness coming at me, and they infect each other, and I'm so often in a hurry, so much to do. So it was as I was preparing for this message, I was, I was doing some work with the Lord and just saying, okay, God, I, th I think Dallas Willard's onto something, but how do we actually make this a bit more actionable? And I know in my life, when I hear that phrase, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life, I hear it as a destination. That's the problem. I hear it as if one day I'll just be sitting around in life's lazy hot tub all you crazy busy people frantic on the treadmill and the rat race and just me and Jesus, baby, enjoying a hot tub. 
destination. That's why I haven't done it because I'm waiting for the day when my life was 100% unhurried. And so as I was praying about it this week, I thought, well, what if, you know, what if we ignore that? And what if we just say, okay, let's all together this week pick five moments this week, five moments. We can all do that where we get our calendar out and we just put an appointment. It could be a five minute appointment. It can be a 30 minute appointment. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry five times this week. What I've noticed about the presence of God is I'm more aware of God in the 30 second and three minute pauses as much as I am in the one hour devotional times. I think that's the myth. I think we think that we have to carve out an hour of silence and you know Exodus, Leviticus, something really spiritual. When what's actually true is all we have to do is notice when we're in a hurry and just pause and breathe. I've been chasing this theory. Um, I, I still haven't gotten to the bottom of it, so I'm going to share it with you as a theory, not as something that's proven. There's a theory that God named God's self Yahweh, uh, w, uh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Some of you have heard it's Jehovah. No, it's not. It's Yahweh. Jehovah is a mispronunciation of what it really is. I blame, blame the Catholics in 900 AD for the Jehovah nonsense. So his name's Yahweh. There's a theory that God named God's self Yahweh because that's the sound we make when we breathe. Yahweh. Because God was telling Moses, I am what I am, which is no help whatsoever. Right, let's face it. Moses says, well, who should I say sent me? And God says, Yahweh sent me. And then we translate that, I am that I am sent me. But if what actually sent Moses into this fearful thing was the God that is as close as the oxygen you breathe, that the idea that the oxygen that you need every moment of every day, you know, 20 to, to 20 breaths a minute, that's how much oxygen you need to survive life. God's presence is right there and all you have to do is pause and breathe and remember God is with me. The word behold in the Bible is in there 1,289 times, behold. Modern translations don't always translate it as behold, but the old King James does. And behold means to gaze upon. Behold means to stop and turn aside and notice. And what if this week, when we notice ourselves in a hurry, rather than imagining a life of Yoda, or the Dali freaking Lama. Instead, we just took a minute, three minutes, seven minutes, and we beheld the glory of God. We just behold the glory of God. So this week, what moments can I ruthlessly eliminate? Hurry. The second barrier to being aware of God's presence is anxiety. And obviously, in my field of work, I talk about this a lot, so I'm going to move quickly through this one. Lately, I've been picturing anxiety like wall insulation. You know that, well, I'm not talking about the bats that make you all itchy, and I'm not talking about the spray 
stuff that falls like rain. I'm talking about when your wall is sealed and you need to then insulate it. So you drill a tiny hole and you stick in the hose and it sprays like that gooey foam and the foam travels and spreads like it's alive and it fills every single nook and cranny of the wall. You know what I'm talking about, that kind of insulation? It's the insulation that comes out of a tube but then expands massively. Have you ever seen that insulation? I'm sure there's a proper name for it. That's the way I see anxiety working in our soul. We start to get anxious and anxiety drills a little hole into our soul and then it squirts itself in. And then if we're not aware of it, it just spreads and spreads and spreads. In, in the anxiety work that I'm doing lately, you know, I always ask people, how do you know when you're anxious? And it, you wouldn't believe how many people don't know how to answer that question. That's very normal where they, they don't actually know how they're anxious. And just as a little tip, if you don't know when you're anxious, just ask someone who loves you and they'd be happy to tell you. Be happy to tell you. And those of you with kids, once your kids are eight, they can tell you. They know. So the goal is how can you notice when anxiety is filling your soul? Because what I've noticed is chronic anxiety, at least the form of anxiety I train in, what it does is it squeezes out our awareness of God. It's not that God is no longer with us. It's that we're no longer able to notice that God is with us and it goes in and expands and fills every little nook and cranny. And so the goal is when you know you can actually use anxiety as a trigger to connect to God rather than it being a liability, you can use it like as a tornado warning, like an early detection system, like, oh, wait, something, hey, something's going on. I can feel myself. Uh, oftentimes the best place to learn that you're anxious is to pay attention to your body. Uh, your body always tells you the truth. Your body's incapable of lying to you. So when you have that headache, when, you, when you're worried and you're trying to worry your way to peace, you know, you believe the lie that if I just think harder, I'm gonna, it's going to be better. That's crazy. That, that tightening body, that racing heart. That can be your sign, oh, I've forgotten God's with me. And what I do in those moments is I just pause and I intentionally grow aware that God is not only with me, but God is ahead of me in that thing I'm already anxious about. So for those of you, maybe you head out to work tomorrow morning and there's a meeting on the calendar tomorrow and you're already in a low-grade anxiety about it. God is already in that meeting. So when you walk into that meeting, you are entering the presence of God. It's not like a magic cure, uh, but it helps. And the third dynamic in our life, and I think this is the number one, is pain. It's pain. In all of human history, pain has caused more people to turn away from God than any other dynamic. Pain has caused more people to turn away from God to say, if this is my life, what's God good for? Forget it, I'm out. What's also true is in all of human history, pain has caused more people to turn toward God than any other dynamic. In all of human history, pain has caused more people to turn to God than any other dynamic. And so the invitation is to simply make the decision to draw a line in the sand, to put a stake in the ground that no matter what comes my way, I'm going to believe by faith that God is with me and that God is good. I'm going to invite Jimmy and the team to come out as we continue to prepare for worship. And so that's a difficult thing to trust God with, just the trust that God is good regardless of circumstances. 
So as we're preparing to worship, I'm just going to invite you to take everything out of your hands. And if it's helpful, you can bow your head. If it's helpful, you can close your eyes. But between hurry and worry and pain, is there one of those that's particular to you right now? Just give you 30 seconds just to give it to God. Just to give it to God. Is there something you're worried about? Is there an overwhelming pain situation? Are you looking ahead at a really busy week? I think one of the deepest human struggles is we just want to know. We just want to know what to expect, what we can count on from God. And in this deep and good desire to know, God invites us to simply be present to God's mystery. It's the wonderful Eastern Orthodox theologian, Kalistos Ware, he says, I'll put this on the screen if it's helpful for you, he says, it's not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God's not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. Or, in the wonderful words of Barbara Brown Taylor, put the odd back in God. Let's be standing and let's enjoy God by singing to God now.